So good afternoon, everyone. Um, today, we have a very special edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Uh, a mentor, a friend, a woman I aspire to be, uh, or at least be more like, Deborah McMurray from Content Pilot is my guest today. As you, th those of you who follow me regularly know that you can find Freeman Means Business on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public for our great episodes starring men and women, and in this case, Wonder Women in Business is all women who move the needle. Deborah, welcome and thank you for being here today. I am so happy to be here, Susan. Thank you. So Deborah's down in Dallas, folks, and I'm over in San Francisco, as most of you know, because not all of my listeners are in legal, but most are. And if you are, you definitely know Deborah, and you probably know me. Uh, before we begin, Deborah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm. I'll start with kind of where I grew up and and education, and then kind of um, talk a little bit about community involvement. Perfect. Um, so I grew up in a small town in West Central Minnesota, so I'm very comfortable with harsh winters. Um, and so for college, I was also attracted to a liberal arts school in another small Minnesota town, and the name of that school is Gustavus Adolphus College, which if you're Swedish, you probably know about King Gustav Adolf, but if you're not, uh, that's okay. It's a great, um, a really fantastic liberal arts school, um, and I'm still an active donor and supporter of the school. Very nice. So I was in... I'll tell you this, I do um, know Hurricane Gustav, and I know Gustav means staff of God, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good, because it was, um, it, it, it gave me, a, it founded and formulated a lot of my, kind of the center and the core of who I am, because the professors were um, outstanding, a lot of them were very liberal, expansive thinkers and um, so unlike you would think you know kind of a small church related school it might be terribly conservative but it was not at all they always prided themselves on having very diverse points of view and um, and so I completely appreciated that as a as a foundation nice well I have to thank yeah. them. if that had anything to do with how you turned out today then thanks to them <laughs> I'll, I'll pass that on. <laughs> so I was a band up, geek. They're going to hit me up for donations. <laughs> sure, they will. Yeah. Um, I was a band geek through and through. Um, I was an instrumental music major, and but I didn't want to be a band director in high school as a profession, or worse, a junior high school. So I immediately went to graduate school and um, continued as a band geek and became, got a master's of music degree in flute performance from the University of Michigan. Wow. So I always think, I think of, I always think of myself as a professional musician, but I really haven't played professionally or played, you know, really, really well at that level since the 1980s. But I, it's still in my brain. I still, music that still runs through so my veins. amazing. So I never knew that about you. This is just blowing me away. This is wonderful. 
Uh, so flautist, is that what you are, a flautist? Is that how we say that? You know, well, in Minnesota, we're sort of more earthy and uh, every day. So we always said flutist. But on the coast, okay. the right and left <laughs> coast, yeah, they, they would call it a flautist. Do you still play at all just for fun at home or...? I don't play for fun because when you've reached a level of, you know, when you're doing things that are extraordinary and then you're just not doing them anymore, your level of proficiency and capability goes on a pretty steep spiral down. And um, so I don't, I, but I do play at Christmas when I'm with my family and I play at family weddings and funerals. So I, I do, you know, I, I still love it and I bring it out, but I can't, yeah, I listen to old tapes and, and these were cassette tapes, of course, back in the day of my performances. And I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. So it's, um, so I feel, oh my God. I feel sad that I don't have that proficiency anymore, but it takes, it's, you know, like any motor skill you have to keep after it. Well, I would imagine you're pretty busy doing other things. Um, <laughs> so yeah. um, I do remember cassette tapes. In fact, Deborah, I had the last make and model of a car that had an eight track in it. So <laughs> That's impressive. That's really yeah. impressive. <laughs> so I'm so impressed that you are this gifted. I already knew you were gifted, but I didn't know you had this talent as well. Just wow. Okay. That's just amazing. So I wanted to ask you, um, this is a little bit of a different podcast than I normally do. Um, I find you to be one of the most authentic, if not the most authentic persons I've ever met in the legal arena and probably just in life. I mean, not just the industry, but you are beautiful inside and out. You own who you are. You know that person and love that person and share that person with the rest of us. And we're very fortunate to know you and and be a part of your world. Um, so I thought today's podcast might be focused on authenticity and how can we bring authentic conversation, communication, and selves into our work lives? Because it's, you know, it's very difficult. Um, so many worry about being judged. So, so I, I thought we would talk about the importance of authenticity, even in the workplace. You know, people are committed mm -hmm. to and passionate about a lot of things. But that's not enough. Um, authenticity is more than when someone just believes in something. They have to act it, feel it, do it, live it, be it. And you seem to be that way. So how do you feel about that, being your authentic self in the workplace? Well, thank you so much for, um, for your lead-in. I appreciate that uh, very much. And I take, um, I take that compliment very seriously and uh, and, and, I, and I receive it gratefully, so thank you. Um, <clears throat> I think it's very hard to be authentic in the workplace. And I think, I think it's perhaps easier today, but I might be naive in saying that. I think back in the, in the, the, the 80s really was when I was transitioning from my music career to uh, my non-music, my, my business career, um, I, I didn't feel like I belonged at all because I had never taken any business courses. And so I, I was 
very much a fish out of water. So I felt like I was pretending a lot as I was learning. It's, it's like I was building my car and, and having to drive my car at the same time. And when you're doing that, you're not focusing on either building an effective vehicle and you're not driving it the best you can. But I got through, I, I, my, my transition from music into business was working for the March of Dimes and I learned uh, a tremendous, uh, you know, countless list of skills, you know, business, marketing, advertising, event strategy and planning, branding, um, how to manage and work with clients and volunteers, terrific on the job training. Um, but I was working 60 hours a week and I couldn't pay my rent and my car payments in the same month. Wow. So I, I, so it was a, a really useful start. And again, another sort of foundational period in my life where I was having to be a sponge. Um, but what I, what I discovered it, when you're a, fat, a quick study, which I am, um, is that, and at, at the time, I wasn't very discerning in, wit, in, in terms of what I needed to know. So when you're a sponge, you're soaking up all the, the liquid around right. you. And um, so I consumed, I think, a lot of um, poison, kind of, um, by spending time with the wrong people, getting involved. Uh, with people that were not ultimately going to be good for me and um, but I'm still again building the building the car and driving the car at the same time and so there's no time to be discerning and so that inauthenticity wasn't by design it was just the way I had to do it and I think a lot of women, perhaps men also, but a lot of women, if they've had career shifts like I did, um, you just, you just have to do it. You just, I mean, you don't, you don't complain about it. You just do it. And, um, and then over time I've gradually been able to, I mean, I'm, you know, much, much more discerning. I, that's, you know, discernment is certainly something that I've, I, I've grown into and I'm, I feel uh, very comfortable in my level of um, discernment today, but it, you know, 30 years ago, that was a very different story. And so just little by little, um, I got smarter and smarter. And ultimately um, I said yes a lot. And interestingly, I, I still say yes a lot, uh, but I also now am very discerning and when, when it's appropriate to say no. So that's a beautiful lesson to learn that some people never learn. And it's, it's hard, especially on women, I believe it's harder for women to say no. And I think the gift of discernment is something that comes not just with age, but with wisdom and making choices and understanding that, you know, even when you don't think you have a choice, you have a choice. And, and mm -hmm. as hard as they might be, you still have a choice. So the gift of discernment, which is something I, think about talk about and you're sort of giving me chills as you speak of this because I've never spoken with anyone about the gift of discernment but it is something that comes with maturity and wisdom which doesn't necessarily mean age 
Um, it might be life experience that makes you mature or wise and you are then that gift is bestowed upon, upon you. Not that, you know, you have to have that. So, um, amazing, amazing. Um, you turned out pretty darn awesome right there. So what, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say in this transition you made to this amazing career that you have now, what was your proudest professional accomplishment? Well, I think I've got two uh, professional accomplishments. Uh, the first is about starting and building content pilots um, in the legal marketing industry with an approach that I believed at the time was unique. And I, I still think we're unique because we view our, our clients holistically and strategically whether they need design content or technology services, which are really the, we call ourselves the four-legged stool strategy, design content and te technology. And there just aren't very many um, legal industry experts that, um, that offer that full holistic, full range of services. So, so I launched content pilot uh, January 1st, 2006. And then just, Two short years later, the recession hit. Oh. So we we had to lay off one third of our employees and cut everyone else's, all the remaining employees' salaries by ten percent. And I still wasn't taking a salary. Wow. Um, I didn't take a, I didn't take a salary for the first four years of uh, content pilot being in existence. And and I went through um, a divorce during that period. So it was a very scary time financially scary time. But then the economy started improving and law firms began and reinvesting again in the kind of work that we do. Um, so the minute we could, um, we increased our employees' salaries back to where they had began, uh, where they had been and then gave them bonuses. And nice. that meant a lot. To, it really meant a lot to them. And it, and it meant a tremendous amount to me to be able to um, you know, thank them for being, you know, kind of for suffering through that awful yes. period with us and, um, and still being, you know, coming to work every day and being on the team. So that was really, really important to me. So that's the first thing. Well, before we go to the next, let me ask you about that. Um, mm -hmm. so how did you manage the relationships with clients and the messaging to the clients and holding their hand? assuring them through this tough time um, so that when the economy did bounce back, they were still with you. I mean, what kind of message, you know, did you give them? How did you hold their hand? Yeah, it was, uh, we're sort of a hand holding company and it's, it's really how I do business. And so the people at the top of content pilot are, just naturally hand-holding uh, hand holding people as well. So we stayed in very close contact with our clients, even when they weren't, and prospects, even when they weren't spending money with us um, or had to put projects on hold um, to let them know that we were supporting them and was there anything that we could do and you don't have to pay us today. We can Reminded yeah. me the, of the old w wimpy and of Popeye fame where he, he wanted a hamburger today, but, but wouldn't be able to pay for it until right. Tuesday, <laughs> uh, something yeah. like that. I remember. Um, yeah. So, 
That's that awesome. is. So we, I mean, the good thing is as a small company, we can be pretty agile and we, to this day, will do all kinds of flexible fee arrangements for clients to make you know, what we think is a, a reasonable and fair price for the work that we do and that we're delivering, but they can pay for it in a way that is most comfortable to the law firm. And it's not just the small firms, smaller firms that are requesting this. Um, some of our large firm clients are wanting different payment arrangements as well. And we're, we're flexible about that. Well, Deborah, you know, those firms went through that same recession. So I wonder how well they handled those conversations with their clients, because as we know, many lawyers are not as great at handholding as you might be. So um, that's interesting. That's interesting. So now your second yeah. uh, proudest professional accomplishment. Yeah, the second is the work that I personally do, which um, uh, is the most fun work on the planet that I could imagine. It's really the positioning strategy work that I do for, for law firms or accounting firms, really any or, or associations or a nonprofit or whatever it is. But it's the, the process of unearthing the essence and culture, personality and growth opportunities for clients, which is really eye opening to them. Um, and it's, super gratifying and so much fun for me. It's just, I mean, it is just a blast. One of my lawyer clients that I've worked with at four different law firms called me a lawyer whisperer. Oh, <laughs> I, took that, I took that as very, very high praise. That's hilarious. Well, someone had to inspire you as a mentor. Who, who was that person and how did that person have such an impact on your life? Well, I, I've never had a, a mentor in a classic sense, um, meaning, yeah, there is no one person who was my professional or personal guide, um, but I'm, I'm completely blessed with a belief in God and a wide range of friends and colleagues that I trust to get me through specific challenges. I, to, I, my mother was a great um, influence on my life. But I wouldn't have, I wouldn't call her a mentor in the way that we define it today. She certainly influenced um, my attitudes and my spirit and, and, and I look a lot like her. So she, she influenced that a great deal as well. But, um, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't call her a mentor in a traditional um, sense. So maybe she influenced you in an, uh, a less overt way then no, no checking off the list. So, so I'm a mentor to some business women and, and there are things we discuss, but it's very personal. You're saying that she had an impact on you, but not necessarily a contrived one. Correct. And not, not one that was highly structured. Um, I guess the, the, there are two things in particular that, that she had a tremendous influence. She was a concert musician. She was a concert pianist. And, um, and so I grew up around beautiful classical music, my, and church music. She was our church organist. And so I, and she didn't have a babysitter. So I would, she would bring me with her as a tiny child. And I literally grew up in the Methodist church. Um, and it was my, my playground. So I was, you know, that's where I played. And so I think that, you know, sort of my, my 
faith, my the foundation of faith that I have, I think is largely because of that. And certainly my love of and, and deep understanding of beautiful music is also that. But the other thing that she's done, which is, which my team finds annoying sometimes, <laughs> is that I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> and as a musician, you, you have to be a perfectionist. And, and so I, I am a perfectionist and I think it's an important quality, but I, I, it can completely get on the nerves of my team sometimes. Well, I have to tell you, I'm sure that your clients appreciate that even when your team doesn't, but a lesson I had to learn, um, it's probably harder for the lawyers that I work with um, than it is for me, but good and done beats perfect and pending. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. I'll yeah, give your team perfect. that little secret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that somebody told me that perfect is the enemy of good. That is true. That is true. But I understand yeah. in, in that you're a musician, why that's true. So I too come from a family of classical musicians. I'm the only person in my family that was not musical. My father played the clarinet, my mother, several instruments and was a, a voice major. And my grandmother was a classical pianist and a cellist in the symphony. So I was raised to, I didn't even know that music had, um, words that I understood <laughs> associated with it until I was like 12. So I grew up listening funny. to opera and symphony music and as we call today, music um, or elevated mm -hmm. music. Yeah. So I love that. I think it's moving. It's just another form of beautiful communication. Um, so what has mm -hmm. been, let's see, we, we talk a lot about women because that's, I'm always interested in lifting women in business and I, I talk a lot about it. I do a lot about it. Um, you do and have done and will continue to do a lot about helping women in business. How would you advise other women to support women in business? Uh, a rising tide raises all boats. Love it. Love Meaning it. the more we elevate other women for the right reasons, the more elevated we have the chance to be. Um, I've often said that we as women are our own worst enemies. I sadly see it in the law firms all the time uh, where women partners have grown into divas or worse and they get by with because of the, um, the station in the law firm, a lack of diversity, um, they have, the law firm has to keep their numbers so they keep these they don't, they don't hold these women accountable for bad behavior and they get by with bullying younger lawyers and staff. And I still see it today. So I think hashtag times up as it relates oh, to bullying that. should, should also apply to women in business, but I think it seldom does at least not yet. So it's funny that you say that very sad fact. Um, I recently posted something a little personal. Um, I said, personally, some of the worst sexism I've ever experienced has been from other women. This may sound weird, but in our patriarchal society, many women adhere to help, adhere to and help enforce an outdated set of gender norms. If you've ever had another woman tell you how to behave in a certain situation, just so you don't upset a man in power, or you've ever been disciplined or admonished by another woman for doing that, 
that which offends a man in a position of power, then you know what I'm talking about. So what I was referring to is some of these women, in order to get where they've gotten, have become the men they've combated. And now they treat others that way. And it's a sense of fear. Mm -hmm. They're acting out of fear. I think so too. And I, or, and I, I, I think it's, I think it's fear. I think it's also just, they, they, um, believe their own, you know, they've, they've, they're wielding power. I was going to say something indelicate, but I won't, but I, I, but I think, yeah, I, I think they, they, you know, the power is such a drug and it's not just men. And we, you know, we hear about right. all, you know, it's just everywhere where we're, you know, it's a, you know, the inequity of power in these organizations, whatever it is, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Senate or, or an, a corporation or um, a, a news network, whatever it is, it's always the men that are um, being, you know, the finger wagging is, is, uh, was, is focused entirely on the men. The women in power are very as addicted to what they've achieved and how hard they had to work to get there as the men are, and um, and they can be worse. And it's more insidious because it's very difficult for a woman or a man, even harder for a man, to complain and to complain about a woman bully in the workplace. And it happens all the time. I agree. And I, I have to say, um, in helping to lift women in business, part of the biggest lesson is raising awareness on the differing ways we communicate. Um, someone wrote to me to say, I love what you do. I want to learn more about what women are doing wrong. And I was like, hello? <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, sir. It was a man. And I said, I think you've misunderstood. Um, it's not that women need to comply and learn to speak as men do. We just need to understand each other's differing languages better. And I think what you see mm -hmm. when women are drunk with power and behave that way is, is the worst situation of all. I call it mean girls. Mm -hmm. um, I think mean mm, girls yeah. hurt everyone. They hurt men because men certainly feel reluctant to speak out against that behavior, especially in today's climate. And they doubly hurt women. Um, I just, it breaks my heart. Um, there are things we can do about it, but it takes courage. And I'm, you know, that's the hard part to make sure everyone has the courage to speak up, step up, you know, not just lean in, but stand up and speak up. So mm -hmm. I'm with you there. Well, yeah, go ahead. I, I see, I, I have a friend who is a, um, a black belt in martial arts and um, and has developed and designed a really terrifically successful consultancy called Athena Strategies, where she is she goes she works with schools, corporations, and so on, and and really focusing on very common sense self defense, um, very untraditional sort of the typical self defense that you might think of. This is really smart and of the day. And she said her greatest fear. Um, as she looks at the world today is how the young men in high school and college and right out of, out, out of, you know, men in their, in their young, young twenties, how they are going to know what to do and how they're going to protect themselves against this backlash of 
all men are bad kind of rhetoric that we hear. And she said that um, she thinks that the women are much better equipped. The young women are much better equipped to, uh, to stand up for themselves of that age than the men are. She said the men, they don't really have a voice because if a, if a young woman accuses them of something, um, nobody listens to the man, to the young, young man in college. And so they're, they're, there, there is sort of this new generation of young men that don't know what to say, don't know how to behave, don't know um, how to deal with women in an equal way um, because the we've gone so far the other direction, and um, and I'm not saying it's inappropriate that we have done that based on the world as it is. But there's now a there's now a whole generation of young men that are just uncertain about so my, my son how... is in that age. My son is 17. Mm -hmm. um, he's fortunate enough to go to a school that um, creates great awareness. Uh, they are they teach college level, but they also teach life lessons and hands-on experiential learning. And so he's very aware. Also being raised by me, I mean I'm clearly open, honest, and direct about everything. Um, mm -hmm. I, I believe that if we go the way that your friend fears we're going, that's just creating an equal but opposite problem. Um, so that's mm -hmm. why I said that the goal of what I do, and this is not a commercial for me, so I won't talk about what I do for a living, but the goal of what I do is to raise awareness so that we can um, interpret meaning so have a meaningful conversation with someone who doesn't speak our language and that's what happens men and women communicate differently not that one is bad and the other is good or right or wrong They're, it can be win-win it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game so mm -hmm. I agree that your friend has hit upon something we need to be aware of and cautious about and prevent from happening um, I guess I'm lucky I guess because my son goes to a really good school that touches upon all that those issues um and maybe he's lucky because he's my son <laughs> i don't know um mm -hmm. yeah so let's let's get to some i mean that's a good segue it's 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 sort of a struggle Let, let's talk about what has been your biggest professional setback and how did you overcome it well it it wasn't really a professional setback um it was really a personal setback. And as I, as I thought about this question and I look back on my career and personal relationships, the biggest challenge was not understanding how um, abuse that I went through in my childhood influenced the choices that I made or didn't make. So I was plagued with shame and I didn't know it. I quickly learned to deny that any shame existed. I just, I didn't recognize it. I didn't understand it. So I just kept burying it deeper and deeper, which is so common. It's, it happens. So it's such a common thing. I wasn't special at all. Um, but the way I coped was overachieve, overachievement it, because it garnered po positive attention and I could temporarily forget the secrets. So I grew up as a, secret, a good secret keeper. And it wasn't until I was in my late 30s <clears throat> that I finally recognized that the common de denominator in all of my problems, whether it was personal or professional, 
was me. So I finally found um, the right therapist after a couple of finding a couple of wrong ones. And I worked with him for 10 years. And um, so I, I am by nature an ambitious person. So as, so I was equally ambitious in the therapy chair. So I worked hard to tell the truth and to own the truth and to not let any secrets control me any longer. So I was finally in a position and ready to control them. Of course, coming out of all of that, um, forgiveness was a critical step in my moving on. Most important, forgiving myself. And then of everyone around me who couldn't see or handle what I was going through and what I went through as a child. It wasn't their fault that these things happened to me and blaming was never going to lead to any healing. So I gave up blaming a lot of years ago. And it's probably, I'm, I'm more grateful for, for the ability to just let that go because I'm, I'm just not plagued by it anymore. And, and there's, it's just, such an awful thing to to be in a blaming kind of way. So I have I have this led me to um, four mottos. I have four mottos in my life, and elevate is one of them. You and I have talked about that before. So whenever I'm in a difficult situation or see one around the corner, I elevate above it. I just I try to in. in um, focus on the self-discipline required to just elevate above it. So I try to see a new horizon and then it's easier for me to identify the healthiest pathway and what I can do next and, and understand what I can control and what I can't control. It's, it's the best way. And it, and it was a good lesson for me. All of it was a really good lesson for me to go through. So I'm, I don't harbor bad feelings about what happened happened to me when I was a kid. I just, it was what it was. And I moved on a long time ago and it, it, you know, I, I manage it. So that's, so that really, you know, I think recognizing the shame and owning it and the truth, owning it. And then um, once you do that, I think it's much easier to move on. So this is so moving. I've been sitting in silence listening. I know some of your story. Listeners may not um, know any of your story, but not only am I moved by the content of what you say, but I'm deeply moved by the way you deliver your story. You're very, talk about authentic, right? So you're very open about the lessons you've learned, the things you went through, what was in your control and what wasn't. Um, I, I know that there are those of us out there who are secret keepers and, and, and I think for most that's their way of self-preservation, but what you just described is true self-preservation comes with the authenticity, the release, the letting go of the secrets and the asking for help where you need it and the non-judgment um, for me, mm -hmm. I have a motto. I say guilt and gossip are two worthless endeavors. Um, if it's something you're going to feel guilty about, don't do it. If it's something you feel guilty about that you didn't do that someone did to you, that's worthless. That's not even, I mean, you couldn't help what was done to you. So you take what you learn and you move forward and you're a living example of that. Um, folks, I've heard Deborah and her story and I've been moved to tears. 
Uh, she's an incredible woman. She walks the walk and um, I am proud to have her as part of my series of speakers in my events that I host across the country and uh, she'll be in San Francisco in May um, sharing her story. Um, but that is a, a I, I, you know, I asked this question about your biggest challenge in the workplace, I'm perfectly fine that you brought it to a personal place because you can't separate the two. You know, you bring that yeah. person to work. So this was quite moving. I, um, you are a shiro, as I like to say. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Shiro. So tell me, um, what is a surprising fact about you that you can share with the listeners that people may not know about you? Well, I, I don't think anyone knows this about me, and it is quite a surprising fact. Uh, in college, I was fired from a Dairy Queen in Minnesota <laughs> because I couldn't make the curly cue at the top of the cone. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Well, we are so grateful to Dairy Queen that put you, that being fired put you on the path that you're on today. Um, that's yeah. hilarious. Well, and I I have to say, though, that decades later, uh, I learned that billionaire Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks and countless other Shark Tank and uh, countless other yeah. very successful um, money printing businesses, he had also been fired from a Dairy Queen. And oh. so I, I figured <laughs> it was my validation, finally my validation that I was in good company. So I'm just going to cut to the chase in order to make my business hugely successful. I am going to go get a job at Dairy Queen and hope they fire me. <laughs> yeah. Well, the curly cone, it, it is, it's much harder than it looks. My, my cones that I was creating ended up a foot tall or more because I just couldn't get that little flick of the wrist. So those kids um, loved you. They're like, where's that lady that used to make the cones? <laughs> yeah. The football comes. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I always try to, this is a special edition of this podcast, focusing on authenticity and authenticity in the workplace and authentic communication. Um, I try to say that, you know, there really is no one truth. There's one person's, you know, we, we project our own realities onto things and situations and other people and such. So there's my truth, there's your truth. And then there's someone else who is on looking their truth. So I try to use language like, I believe this is what happened or I, or this is what, how I saw things, or this is what it meant to me. And, and in that mm -hmm. language, rather than saying, here's what happened. And I know working with lawyers that that can be a struggle because they're all about the yes or no, black or white facts or facts. And there's only one truth and it's my truth. But in the workplace, when building relationships and working well with others, you need to give room for other people to disagree or see things differently. And sometimes that's hard. So I try to say things like um, from where I was standing or sitting, or this is what I saw, or here's what I believe. How do you handle, um, the you know controversial moments where someone sees black where it was white or someone sees green where it was blue or you know you know they're hard uh, i think it it depends on what the subject matter is yes um but what i what i always try to do is 
put myself in the other person's shoes and see what try to see what they're seeing before I react. I I I'm an instant reactor, but I've really learned to temper that over the years and um, and be respectful. Certainly, always respectful of the other person person's position. But I but I try to see how they got there. So okay. I. I try to I try to um, dig into it or unpack it, as we would say today, unpack it a little bit and ask questions about their framework that they're that they're dealing with or or the circumstances that might be um, guiding them in to have the point of view that they have. That's and awesome. um, and so I think that. Um, and then I just listen and some, you know, I, 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 I always want to be right. And, and, you know, if I'm having, if certainly if I've been hired as a consultant, um, I, I want to deliver great work and I want to be right and believe my, what I, what I'm telling them or offering them is, is the right pathway for them. But if they can't see it, then I haven't done my job well enough. I yet. got you. I agree. So I, I, yeah, I just have to keep trying harder because um, I can't tell them they're wrong because they're not. Right. So exactly. I, yeah. So, yeah. So, so I just have to understand them. what their ob the obstacles are. I have to do a better job understanding the obstacles. So what led you to this decision or what brought you to this place um yeah how is it that you got mm -hmm. to where you are those are all great mm -hmm. great ideas and suggestions or or ways that, or approaches if you will um i should try that with my son so instead of you know i try not to be the you're wrong i'm right mom uh person you know that kind of mm -hmm. um instead i'll say you know well what led you to make that choice or what why did you think that was a good choice so um i think that's a really good approach um in closing there's some big questions or, or little questions but big topics one is being grateful i live in gratitude even on the toughest of days there's something good to come of it i know you're that way um what do you think in past generations what do you think they had to deal with that we don't have to now and what are you most grateful for today I am most grateful for the equity and diversity that we have today. I don't think past generations had, and I, I know, you know, there is still so much strife around this and so much, you know, so many countless discussions, um, appropriate discussions about inequality and everything, but it's still so much better, I think, than it was. And I, I believe that diverse Americans really had a hard time. And I, you know, women had a hard time, LGBTQ residents and citizens had a hard time. And I think anyone who was a diverse citizen um, is having a hard time and, and they still are. And so we're still having these same conversations, but I believe it's, it's better. Than it was and so we have the opportunity like i have a diverse workplace at content pilot um and i'm so grateful that we have all the creative opinions and all the diverse backgrounds 
coming together to to find the best solutions for our clients. I just that I I believe that so strongly that 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 is the goal that we as Americans should have. Awesome. That's beautiful. So, you know, I'm going to bring this back to women in business and leadership positions. Um, Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that if more women were in, and I don't like the word power, I like the word influence. So um, power has a nasty connotation t- at times, especially in today's climate. Um, but if if more women were in leadership positions, uh, do you think things would be different in a, in a positive way? Or how would things I, be? I do. I think that, again, I think, um, I would, in a perfect world, I would like to see, if, you know, when you think of sort of the, how the world balances itself, I would like to see, um, you know, Congress being 50% men, 50% women, and the Senate being 50-50, and corporate America being 50-50. And um, so I, I would like to see a shared balance and a shared gotcha. influence where men and women are sharing the responsibility for that equally that yeah. I think that would be the best. I think that sounds pretty darn great. Um, one last question and no listeners that I will put all of Deborah's contact information into the blog that I write about this. But for those of you who aren't going to read the blog and are only going to listen to the podcast, Deborah, tell us your contact information after you tell me why you chose Content Pilot as the name of your company. <laughs> uh, that was a long time ago now. Uh, uh, Content Pilot, we are a technology company and we build, we manage content. So we, we, we design software applications that manage website content, proposal automation tools, experience databases, um, mobile apps, and all of it fundamentally is managing content and sharing content among all of those different platforms. So pilot, you know, um, let's hope that we, 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 we make it as easy as possible to fly, to fly high with content pilots. <laughs> I love it. So, Captain McMurray, how do people reach you if they would like to reach you? The very best way to reach me is always through email. Um, and that is Deborah, spelled the old fashioned biblical way, D E B O R A H, dot McMurray. Not like Fred McMurray, for those of you of a certain generation. Um, M C M U, yeah, yeah, yeah. My three sons, M C M U R R A Y at contentpilot.com. So once again, Deborah McMurray, and then I'll. I'll yes. Ca- pardon? Yes, Deborah Dot McMurray. Deborah.mcmurray at Content Pilot. Okay, so I will put all of this information into the blog and we will sync the podcast in there. This has been a particularly fun and moving and sad at sometimes, but happy at others, but long, longer than usual, um, but meaningful podcast for me. You're always so delightful. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing before we sign off and say goodbye? 
just a note to say thank you, Susan, for um, lifting up women and for um, for you know doing what your what you can to inspire others and to be authentic and good and sharing and all of the things that all of us in, um, aspire to be. Wow. Somebody helped me and I'm trying to help others and this is really about others and I see you do that every day. So thank you so much. It's been fun and I will talk to you soon. Bye everybody. Have a good afternoon.